0: and welcome, I'm Boris Lamont and this is the New Zealand Wine Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode where we're speaking with Paul Sims from Manifesto Wine here in Auckland, New Zealand, Manifesto are an importer and distributor of Italian wines and also distributor of some boutique New Zealand wines. We talked with Paul about his career in hospitality and how he got into doing what he's doing now and being one of the first to have a wine bar in Auckland. So right now let's go have a chat with Paul. So hello Paul. Hello. Nice to have you here. Kind of good to be here, are they? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure it's going to be great. So how did you get into what you're doing now? What, um, where, did, where did you first start out in the uh, um I, the Well,
1: I started as a wine waiter when I was 36, mm-hmm. which was a wee bit late. And um, I just happened to be having lunch. A marriage is split up. had happened to be having lunch with a guy that I was one of the owners of Harborside. And he talked about the fact that, you know, what we'd done at university. And I said, oh, I'd never been a waiter. And he said, oh, you should come and work for us. You won't be doing anything at night anymore, will you? (laughs) (laughs) So I started part-time, fell in love with wine, always drank wine before that. But, you know, the old stereotype of don't know what you drink, can only remember the colour of the label. Mm -hmm. And so at Harborside, where they had a great New Zealand list in the, we're talking late 80s, early 90s, so very little on the international list outside of Champagne. And
0: uh, went from there. After three
1: years there, started my own wine
0: bar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they they were certainly at that time one of the leading restaurants in Auckland. In yeah, like well,
1: they were a handful. I mean, they, those guys and Chin Chin below them, Harbourside would be doing 600 covers a day, every day, mm-hmm. busy, had a full training system. I set up a wine training system. You'd start as a runner, unless you were 36, then you got a little bit of an edge on everyone else. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, they, yeah, they so were they, full on. Yeah, and they they were doing it properly. So doing it they, properly. Yeah, so yeah. you'd have a runner, you'd have a bus, you'd have a senior waiter, a wine waiter, uh, floor managers. Mm. The
0: uh, bar had a great wine list. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, was, mm. And and so Helen, were you doing doing that for and what happened I next?
1: started there in the late 80s, about a year after they opened. Ran through till 1993. Mm-hmm. And then I guess just got so excited about wine that I wanted my own wine bar. Right, okay. Yeah, so mm. uh, found a lease just up from the town hall and banged into it. Right, and were there many wine bars
0: around at that, at that time? Or? Well,
1: it depends on who's pushing their barrow really, doesn't yeah. it? Um, people say I was the first, but there was one before it on K Road that was fantastic. Um, in fact, his son
0: owns a wine shop Northcote now, right? Okay. But, oh, so, so but even so, re- re- relatively pretty real rare. Was, yeah, was early days given and given where you can go now and
1: what's available Yeah, now. and yeah. certainly the wine bar in Cairo was more you know the odd uh, carton from uh, West Auckland being poured right. into a glass. It wasn't really
0: what we were looking for doing. Right. So what what, what were you focused on then?
1: Yeah, uh, we had. Uh, we set about 30, 30 people upstairs, about 60 downstairs. So downstairs was kind of live jazz events, a bit of classical stuff. But the street level was basically all about wine. So every month we had a different lean. We might have a wine that promoted New Zealand Chardonnay for a month. So we'd have 15 New Zealand Chardonnays by the glass. Next month we might look at Panama from Martinborough. Mm-hmm. So it was, yeah, it was a great time to introduce people
0: to things. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah, yeah, good. And how,
0: how long was that running for? Uh, I
1: ran it for seven years. Mm-hmm. So about halfway through that, we got hit by that wonderful power break that the whole of Auckland had. Oh, right. In the yes, 90s. Yes, yes. Fortunately, we were on the AT grid, so we always had power. Right. But, um, yeah, it changed. Our, I guess that sort of coincided with a lot of, little bit of boredom from us because we were thinking, okay, what are we going to talk about next month? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we started to look elsewhere and had a sherry month, for instance, 20 sherrys on and only two wines. Um, and then, yeah, ran through to 2000 and then I started travelling right. for a okay. little while. Yep, yep.
0: So it was time to do something else?
1: Yeah, I think um, it had always been a bit of a struggle, mm kind of nice to be the third or fourth person I think on the block rather than the first Um, but it was exciting it was fun and it got me interested in wine Um, when I left I thought well maybe we'll start in central Otago and we'll go from the world's most southern vineyard which I now currently represent in my current business um, to the world's most northern Mm -hmm. never got to the world's most northern we kind of got stuck in the States and Italy
0: and then headed back Right, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a long way to go. There's a lot in between, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot in between.
1: We did, did a pretty good deal on the States, I think. We covered a lot of States
0: yeah. that made some pretty woeful wine. Yeah. <laughs> I Me and yeah. some that made some great wine. Yeah, yeah. But, so, it's, so just going back, so did you see, while you are at the wine bar, did you see much of a change in New Zealand and the wine industry? You would have, would you not, through Yeah, the, the yeah, there was yeah. a huge change. I yeah. mean, basically... When we started, uh, you
1: had companies like Montana that probably had about 60% of the production. Yeah. They maybe still do, but there are so many little guys that came on board. Um, some of them, most of them were under the illusion that they could make some money out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, the area like Martinborough in ninety in the late 80s that was just starting to kick in by the middle of um, the 90s, we were having, uh, you know, launch parties for the latest vintage of Arterangi and Martinborough Vineyard, mm-hmm. and it was worth their while to actually come to Auckland and start selling stuff. Right. Um, yeah. And then you know they're amazing guys, uh, Stan Chifney and Martinborough, growing Chenin Blanc in a place where everyone thought the only thing you should grow is Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think. Variet- different varietals started to come out. Yep. I mean, let's face it, we didn't always drink Chardonnay in New Zealand. Um, when I started, uh, so if we're talking the late 80s, Sauvignon Blanc had a bit of a grip because Marlborough had planted uh, in the 70s, but there was a lot of stuff that was still being done with sort of Moloturgo and Chasselas and varieties that were big croppers that yeah weren't very exciting. no. And then all of a sudden, these new exciting varieties, mainly from France, came along, but um, from different regions of France. You know, Chenin Blanc from the Loire, and obviously Chardonnay and Merlot and Cabernet from Bordeaux, Mm. Pinot from Burgundy. And when I think of 19, I think 1982 was the first year that any New Zealand Pinot Noir got a gold medal in a national competition here.
0: Okay.
1: And then we kind of didn't see any more until the late 80s. So through the 90s, that just blossomed. Mm-hmm. Central Otago, of course, another example of how it changed. Uh, whether the people's attitudes and tastes changed? I think that was led rather than
0: sought by a lot of the population. Right, okay, so it was what, what they were introduced to, yeah, to yeah. That, that started to make them think, yeah. oh, okay, this is good. Yeah. yeah, I think it very much so.
1: Yeah. And so when they came to our place, and even nowadays, you know, when they go to some of the places around town and they see varietals that they've never heard of, they're usually gun-shy, so they rely on someone saying to them, hey,
0: you like that? Try this. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And what about... Um Imported wines during that time when you had the the wine bar, did that start to g- huge. G- expand as well? Yeah. Like the, the again, the different varietals that were being brought in, and
1: yeah, well, I think I mean, the huge difference was um, because of deregulation. That prior to the mid 80s, you had to have a, a license, and those license holders, holders held onto their stuff, um, you know, so they tended to bring in things that they knew would sell mm. because they only had a limited dollar value of that license whereas once we deregulated where anyone could become a wine importer or anyone could become a wine bar or anyone could have a restaurant then the whole world opened mm. uh, before being in the wine industry I worked for Jodian cinemas and in those days the early 80s the only way we could open a new cinema was by closing an existing one because we had only so many licensed seats. Yeah. yeah. Sounds ridiculous now, huh? It's like, what the hell was that about? But then that was what licensing was about. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: You know, you went on a waiting list for a new car. Yeah. So once the liquor industry was deregulated a bit or loosened up on, um, there were people that not only um, were able to import and um, represent small wineries, but they were also open to open they're able to open something directly opposite a pub whereas before the pub would be able to say oh no that's competition you know they can't have a licence
0: Yeah right and you wouldn't get it Yeah 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 and and that also would have um, been an opportunity for people like Harborside to then expand their own wine list and yeah yeah, and yeah. a bit more
1: Yeah I, I think that I mean that happened amazingly rapidly too mm-hmm. that we went from a situation where in the mid to late 80s we might have had uh, some champagne on we might have had one Chablis that was from Chablis in, in Burgundy. And if we were kind of a top end restaurant, we might have had a couple of Burgundies on, but that's about your lot. Mm. So when I started at Harborside, I think our list, our white wines were 80% New Zealand, 20% Australia, the rest of the world combined. And the red list was 80% Australian. 20% New Zealand and the rest of the world combined. Mm. That's probably the other way around nowadays. Yeah. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And um, so you went off, did you, did you travelling around and then ended up back here after your trip through the different uh, Well, initially,
1: um, travelled around the States, through Europe, stayed in Italy for, we had the benefit of having a friend's house for five months, so nice. swandered around uh, there for five months. Went into the uh, the hills behind us and got firewood for the pizza oven and made pizza dough and you know did all the things you want to do if you're having your Italian dream. Um, and then I ended up back in uh, I ended up in Sydney because I had a friend who owned a nightclub. He'd bought a little boutique hotel. He wanted to open a good wine bar there, and so dragged me over there. Where was that? Was that Byron? Uh, No, no, it was actually uh, in Sydney. Oh, Um, okay. Yeah, um, just off Oxford Street. And uh, he paid me very well for very little, (laughs) very little (laughs) input, lovely guy. But then the the issue was held up by Historic Places Trust uh, regulations with the actual structure of the building. And at that stage, I thought, oh, well, um, I'll work here for a while then came back to New Zealand to run Vinnie's in Herne Bay.
0: Right, okay. And be, being another uh, iconic Auckland restaurant at the, Iconic at the Auckland
1: restaurant. Mm. Got a phone call from the owners because they were going down to uh, Craigie Range for a two-year contract to set up a restaurant down there, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And uh, they wanted me to come back and run their restaurant. God only knows why. Mm-hmm. Um, but fortunately, we had Mike Meredith in the kitchen. Right, well, that's handy. It's now a pretty much a household name. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very good and, and there's been a few people go through Vinnies and yeah get,
1: yeah. Uh, well of course you know you think of some of the main movers in the the wine industry like Cameron Douglas who's um, made a really good career out mm. of falling mm. in love with wine and, and learning about wine mm. um, but I think like say the French Cafe which was probably the only other opposition that I can think of at the time um the whole emphasis was on having specialists and having people that knew what they're talking about mm. and giving that level of service that we probably wouldn't have got um, without that energy
0: from the owners. Right, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they were quite deliberate about what they were trying to achieve with... Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think almost... Um, it almost worked against them. I remember when we when we changed... When I took over the ownership of Vinnie's, we had a flyer introducing Mike as the chef in the kitchen and um, and we actually went around, had them around the concierges, etc., but then went around the hood and just put them in letterboxes with the menu. And we had a number of people coming up saying, oh, wow, I thought this was really posh, but the prices are pretty much the same as down the road. Right. It was just the level of service that... You know, made made
0: it feel that next step that up, next step up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yep. And it was, I suppose. Oh for, yeah, it for, was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, for uh, for 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 you know, restaurants in Auckland at that time. It yeah. was the next step up. Yeah,
1: we're mm. we're talking about some pretty uh, innovative cuisine
0: mm-hmm. for that period. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and when? Uh, how long were you at Vinnie's? And
1: I worked there for the two years that so they were two away. Years. Yep. Yep. And they came back up eventually sold it Mm -hmm. Um, and so at that stage I got a job with a wine distributor and mainly uh, the guy just came in I'd known him from obviously tasting his wines and said look you know you should probably come and work for us played with them for a couple of years and then started travelling again, got a bit bored Um, but in that time they had a fantastic imported Portfolio as well as their local stuff. You know, they looked after iconic New Zealand wineries like Milton and Cumi River, and, um, and then they also had these great Italian
0: wines that I was able to get into restaurants around town. Right, okay. And you already had some exposure to Italy and Italian wine. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah. That, did that reignite some?
1: Yeah, well, I think more. Exposure more to the culture than to the wines Mm -hmm. because, you know, those five months we weren't exactly, we weren't earning any money. So it was very much going down to the supermarket, but a supermarket in Italy is quite a different experience to a supermarket in New Zealand. So you can get a wine that you would never see in a New Zealand kind of boutique retail outside of a retail boutique retail store Mm. you could get in the supermarket there so all of a sudden it was like ah yum we can it's only about I guess it was still lira then (laughs) yeah but in today's terms three or four euro you know for something that would maybe be 35 bucks here so it was very exciting Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: yeah 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 Okay, and so uh, you got introduced to this um, business, and you started looking further into yeah. the Italian wine side of it. Yeah, I think
1: I would think what happened was um, it's great being a New Zealander. You know, the the great thing about New Zealand is and I remember this mate Simon Willie telling me this years ago that um, he went to the UK and started sailing. And he said the only English that were sailing were the aristocracy. No one else could afford that sport. But any Kiwi can go down to the local yacht club and learn how to sail. Mm -hmm. And I had the same experience in wine when I, you know, I, I was a wine waiter essentially at Harborside. Glorified version of that was that I did a bit of a wine program teaching there and looked after the bar figures. But basically, I was a wine waiter. And my first trip to Europe was to France. And I was introduced to some of the iconic producers there just because the wine distributor that sold wine to Harbourside said, oh, well, you should go and see um, Tanninger and you should go and see Champagne Turts and you should go and see um, Olivier Laflave, who is a great Burgundy producer. So all of a sudden you're going and having dinner with these people who are held up Somewhere just below God, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> esteem-wise, and tasting their wines that you would never dream of being able to taste. Mm. So it was a real eye opener. Mm,
0: that's um,
1: cool. so. It was partly that, and then when I obviously that five months in Italy was a fantastic introduction to what we were already doing at I where you're eating and drinking as a matter of course. It's not just a binge drink on a Friday night. We're thinking about what wine might go with that food. Um, and then coming back and working for Vintners kind of closed the circle really that I saw how maybe I could apply it myself. Having said that, I didn't straight away. No? Um, no, so I finished at Vintners and then had my third or fourth midlife crisis and um, went overseas. Yeah. So I went to Denmark because my family are from Denmark and I'd never met anyone there. Right. Um, So we're talking, I was in my 50s and hadn't actually met any of the family in Denmark. Went there, painted houses, dug some ditches, did whatever a Kiwi has to do to get by. Couple of trips down into Italy and and France in, in the meantime. And then when I came back... I was probably uh, mid to late 50s, applied for a few key jobs that I thought that would sue me down to the ground. They looked at me as though I was insane because I'd been doing nothing for three years. And um, <laughs> Well, that, not true. I'd been working, but yes. in their view, doing nothing. Plus, I was in my 50s, not in my 20s. Um, so that was when I fell for the second time into the wine industry, by just bumping into a guy and that I'd known all, all these years through the industry and he said, Hey, I know some guys in Italy, so if, you know, I'll import some wine, you sell it, it's all good. Mm.
0: Mm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well that was a that was a nice uh, happening. Easy, isn't yeah. it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Falling is better than, <laughs> yeah, the, pushing. than climbing.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, that's right. And uh so how long ago was that? What are we talking about?
1: So, uh, eight years ago now.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yep. yep. And So did started off with um, probably those few introductions and, and yeah. going from there. Hmm.
1: So we actually started off with probably, um, I don't know, two and a half pallets of wine that were sitting in his double garage that he was just quietly flicking off to his mates. Mm-hmm. And I went round and, of course, had restaurant contacts through all of my years involved in that industry. And within 18 months, it became too big for him. He was... In the '70s, retired with just a small bit of money to play with, so uh, I bought the stock and went
0: from there on my own. Right. Okay. And so growing, growing it from there, taking yeah. on, taking on more. Yeah. I mean, the, to me, the great
1: thing about the rest, the restaurant and wine industry is that it's a community, so I can get hold of. Uh, La Valentina Mont- uh, make Montepulciano and Abruzzo and say hey I'm looking for some Pinot Grigio or something from Italy." and they say oh get hold of these guys they make great Pinot Grigio so very easy to buy more than you can possibly afford
0: right <laughs> 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 yeah yeah, and so selling into restaurants and yeah, ninety percent into restaurants. Ninety percent into restaurants. Yeah, and so how was that when you first started out? Was there a, a, an existing good appetite for Italian wine, or was it uh, has it been something that you've needed to educate people on as to what's available and how it works in a restaurant?
1: Uh, yeah, I think both. Um, there was certainly an appetite for wines that people could relate to easily that you know you think of Tuscany everyone's that is into travelling to Italy or into wine has read a book about Tuscany someone in Tuscany either doing up a cruddy old house or growing up there as a kid Um, so you connect Chianti with Tuscany and that's a no brainer for people to think oh yeah we need a Chianti you know Mm -hmm. Um, I think One of the things we did in the early days of Harbourside was we had an Italian month, and we had 20 white wines. So all Tony, the owner, had done is sort of phoned around every distributor and said, send in a bottle of whatever Italian white wine you got. 18 of them were woeful. (laughs) They all kind of tasted the same. When I was doing the tasting with the staff, I had people sort of putting their fingers up to their neck, saying, move on. Right, right. Um, And so we always had this problem with Italian wine because we I guess because the licenses were value related people would bring in cheap and get volume in here once we delicensed, and you could get good Pinot Grigio or um, good Sangiovese good Chianti you'd get these guys my age that said oh yeah I used to drink Chianti when I was at university it's horrible stuff so there was a bit of education, but there was also those kind of stock standard wines that people knew. They knew names like Barolo. They might not be able to tell you what they should taste like or what the grape is. Right. But they connected it with that higher
0: echelon to wine quality. Right, right. So you were able to bring in something of good quality and go, well, here's what a good wine yeah. should, should taste yeah. like. Yeah. Yeah. And have you, have you seen that change over the last few years? Changed the- amazingly. Yeah. And I think... Um, I was probably
1: pretty lucky when I fell into that role because a lot of the guys that had been bringing in a good range of Italian wines, a lot of the sort of medium-sized distributors, were focusing more and more on New Zealand wines because the New Zealand wine industry was growing so rapidly and you could get volume out of the sales of New Zealand wine and the boutique wines could be easily placed into restaurants. You know, when you think about names like Amersfield and Mount Difficulty, everyone who goes to a restaurant in Auckland knows those names, or Wellington, or Christchurch. Mm. Um, And so for them, it was a no-brainer to build their New Zealand portfolio and probably their international ones flattened out a a little bit. You know, Mm. they didn't probably bring in the range that they used to. Mm. So when I came in, there was already a market there albeit small, for imported wines. So I jumped on that and built the Italian thing. And I think the other thing that happened at the same time is Spain became flavour of the month. Oh. So people were ringing all this cheap Spanish junk that, you know, it was all one of three varieties. Mm. And um, so all of a sudden diners, because they weren't expensive wines, were willing to take the pun. Well, they were willing to have a way to say, oh, well, this one's good. You like fruity wines or well, you like a dry wine? This one's good. Right. So I found off the back of that, it was easy to actually so build an Italian portfolio. It
0: broadened consumers' appetite for for trying different. Yeah, I think it probably just made them relax a bit more Right. Yeah, because they weren't. Paying an arm and a leg for a good right. imported wine. Yeah, yes, yeah. So it wasn't such a sort of crucial decision there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you want to get it right if yeah. you're spending, if you're spending big money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
1: yeah. I think certainly, you know, when you compared it to what you'd pay for a Central Otago Pinot, mm. a glass of Central mm. Otago Pinot, mm. it was like, oh, wow, this is mm. can't be that bad. You know, it's a few bucks cheaper, and yeah, it's on the list, so they must like it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and. Uh, Italian whites, have you seen that? Yeah. Start to lift Yeah,
1: again? It's interesting, isn't it? Because we look at um, Australia and we would say red wines. They make great red wines, but you know their white wines are a bit suspect and, mm. and people would look at New Zealand and historically, they would have said they make grey white wines because 70% of what we produce is Sauvignon Blanc. So mm. anyone who likes New Zealand wine probably drinks Sauvignon Blanc overseas. Um, but their red wines are a bit mediocre but then you taste those New Zealand red wines or those Australian white wines um, and they're exciting and mm. they're interesting and they're mm. well made and, and they've got great fruit quality and they've got great structure and I think the same thing was uh, literally you know that everyone thought oh yeah it's all about Canti Barolo mm-hmm. Barresco it's all about red stuff isn't it mm. do they make white wine there yeah mm. mm. um, but the white wine market, I mean, the, the wines that they make are just so suitable for our climate, mm-hmm. for our
0: food. Right. Yeah. 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 So that, um, well, you know, not, not only, but um, summer seafood. Yeah. Yeah. Some good matches there. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you have a particular favourite at the moment, be it white or red, that uh, you like matching or something you like cooking and matching or something that you've just had and you went, wow, that's that's really good. Really good match.
1: Yeah, I had one of those every day. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: And they, pretty much, sometimes twice a day. Um, But, you know, off the top of my head, Garvey to Mm Garvey. No one's ever heard of Garvey to Garvey here. Mm. Um, Garvey's the region. Garvey's the town. Um, It's got this, it's this beautiful balance, I guess, between, I always found it hard when I was training staff because they'd say, what's it like? You know, is it like, Sauvignon Blanc or mm. is it like Pinot Noir, Suave is the same question yes. and you say well it's not like either of them otherwise there's no point in having it on your wine list you might as well just have Pinot Gris or, or Sauvignon Blanc yeah. um, and uh, garvey has this beautiful aromatic elegance with this lovely acidity to hold it all together and um, when we look at now we're starting to see oyster bars in New Zealand, finally. I don't know why we don't have one on every coast and every street (laughs) corner. But um, you look at the seafood that we have, we eat a lot of sashimi. We eat a lot of – some of us eat a lot of oysters. Mm. um, But ceviche, Mm -hmm. cured raw fish. Yep. yep. And those wines with this lovely acidity and aromatic balance mm. are just perfect to go with it.
0: Right, okay. Okay, so so that with with particularly with yeah, seafood, yeah, 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 yeah. All right, nice. It
1: beats a uh, Pinot Gris or a Sauvignon Blanc hands down.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, very good, good. And um, so we come to the uh, the final question. Yeah. So, if you could have uh, a glass of wine uh, with anyone. Uh, down through history or maybe you could even think of someone that hasn't been around yet which is a bit of a stretch <laughs> but <laughs> some people have um, what wine would it be and, and who would you like to um, share that with yeah what
1: hey that's a big question obviously my, my partner's always the first choice but if yeah. we're going outside of that and um, you know the obvious one for me coming from the movie industry would be uh, a Chianti with Anthony Hopkins yes I'd actually like to meet with Anthony Hopkins, not necessarily with a canty, but he seems to like the two with uh, a friend he was having for Dinner in Silence of the Lambs um, because he'd be a fasc- fascinating guy to have over yeah. a glass of wine to yeah. talk to, Yeah. and if I wasn't with him, I think Olivier Laflave, who's a wine producer in Burgundy, mm-hmm. and he was the person that opened my eyes to white wine from Burgundy. Oh, okay, nice. He was amazing.
0: Yeah.
1: Amazing and generous host, as they all are. But yeah, he was the first, so I'd probably
0: have an old champagne with him. Yeah, nice. Well, there's a couple of good ones. Mm. Yeah, you get some good conversation there. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Hey, well, thanks, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks, thanks for you. dropping by. Yeah, yeah, very good. All right, bye cool. for now. Thanks, mate. We've been speaking with Paul Simmons from Manifesto Wine here in Auckland, New Zealand. Be sure to also check out some of our other great New Zealand wine podcasts where we talk with others involved in the New Zealand wine industry such as vineyard owners and wine makers. You can also check out some of the other great podcasts up on podcast.nz uh, including amongst others the Tech Podcast, Business Podcast and the Fearless Kitchen. Thanks for listening in and we look forward to your company again very shortly. He am mai. Bye for now.